I hope you all are doing well today. I'm um, excited to be able to share God's word with you all today. Um, so today we're going to be in Hebrews 2. I'm really excited. Um, we've been talking about like the past month, um, probably longer than a month, uh, the stages of which parents get to parent their children, whether it's you know from zero to three when we're trying to train them to be actual functioning human beings, learning how to eat their own food and uh, use the restroom, all the way up to you know, 18 when we're trying to send them out of the house and encourage them and cheer for them. Um, and I figured it would be a really good point um, to just kind of take a break and, and focus on how are we God's children? It's really easy to kind of get caught up in this, um, in our own perspectives of, of interacting with people. I'm, you know, I, I work with Young Life, so I'm specifically working with adolescents from middle school high school to college. Um, and so I'm constantly in that framework of, okay, you know, what age am I working with right now? How am I encouraging them to follow Jesus more? And it is so easy to skip the step at which we're God's children and we will never get out of that. We never stop becoming God's children. Like I hope one day my children, um, they don't stop becoming my children, but I hope they stop becoming children. <laughs> you know, like I hope they grow up into a new phase where they don't need me. But what's interesting about this, you know, the theological perspective that we are God's children is that we never stop becoming his children. We're constantly dependent on him. We're constantly infants. We're constantly in need of his strength and his love to move forward in life. And that's a weird framework because we don't really operate in those categories. As parents, we're always trying to push our kids to the, towards the next stage. As children, we're grasping and trying to claw to the next stage. I remember, you know, when I was 13, acting like, I, I know the world. Like, I'm an adult when I was, you know, just a teenager. Um, and so I want to challenge us. We're going to be reading through, like I said, Hebrews 2. So if you have a Bible and want to pull out Hebrews 2 on your phone or if you have a physical Bible, um, we're going to be walking through this entire chapter because I think Hebrews 2 um, is incredible, but it invites us to look at what it means to be God's child. And I want to say this, Hebrews is an incredibly difficult book to understand. I personally think Hebrews is, is the most difficult book in the Bible to, from start to finish to really grasp your head around what is the author trying to say and why. And there's a few different reasons for that. The book of Hebrews is written to a very Jewish audience, and I'm not Jewish, so I don't understand a lot of the things that this author is trying to get across, but we're going to try and do our best today to stack hands on doing that. The author of Hebrews just weaves together in this beautiful way. If, if you have a Bible, especially a physical Bible, there's just going to be brackets everywhere in which the author is quoting and quoting and quoting and quoting and pulling from the Old Testament all of these scriptures to try and give us a glimpse at who Jesus is and how he relates to us. This book is masterfully written. It is a beautiful book. And here's the thing, um, if you want to go to the slide, it says this, the letter of Hebrews, it went to Christians in danger of slipping back into Judaism, into the, following the law and the Torah because of persecution. It interprets the Old Testament explaining many Jewish practices as symbols 
that prepared the way for Christ. It stresses that Christ was from God and is higher than any angel, higher than Moses, Joshua, or any priest or sacrifice. It's profound because the author is constantly trying to just look and see, man, how do I explain Jesus to people when they're really suffering and when they're really grasping it, trying to understand how, how does God fit into this? How does God fit into raising a three-year-old? How does God fit into raising a 16-year-old or a 25-year-old that has failed to launch? How does God fit into us? <laughs> when we're failing to launch, failing to grasp God's grace and understanding and move forward in our faith, when we feel stuck, how does God fit into all this? This book is profound, but difficult. But it does answer those questions, I think, in a way that we need to grasp. So before I go into there, I want to share a story with you all. This happened to me in seventh grade. I had a teacher. Um, she was a little more unique, but we, we had this, I think it was like the second week of school. right? Like the first week of school, you don't do much. You kind of learn who the teacher is. And we have a lot of teachers in this room. They probably understand this. And by the second week, you're starting to get you're starting to get into some of the schoolwork. You're starting to understand who your teacher is. And so my teacher in seventh grade, I believe it was my science teacher, she wanted to have a fun day with us. And so she loved Where's Waldo. Does anyone love Where's Waldo? I loved that book as a child. I am now emotionally scarred from Where's Waldo because she printed out some large papers of Where's Waldo in color, and she broke us up into groups, okay? And she said the first person, the first group that finds Waldo, you get a prize. And we're all like, we got this, right? I'm 17, or I'm in seventh grade, not 17. I'm in seventh grade, and so I understand the world, and I can conquer anything. And so we broke up into groups. I made sure to pick my friends, who were not very intelligent, uh, but I thought we were going to win. And so we, we put, you know, the Where's Waldo out on our desk, and we're looking, and we can't find it. And after 10 minutes, we're like, look, 10 minutes, we're looking around at the other groups, and they're getting frustrated as well. And so we're like, where's Waldo? It's not here. And she's like, I promise, where's Waldo? Is there. Waldo is there. You just have to find him. And so we kept searching. And after 15 minutes, some groups are just like, this is stupid. We give up. And so we are like systematically going through every single person. Not just like one of us. It's all four of us. Like, is that Waldo? No. Next person, is that Waldo? No. Next person. And it, it, we went through the whole thing. And after like 25 minutes... We went to our teacher finally, and we're like, Waldo is not here. And at the end of class, she, she was like, yeah, Waldo's not there. Waldo is not there. <laughs> we were like, what? I can never do a Where's Waldo again. <laughs> it was horrible, because every time I'm like, is Waldo actually there? I don't know. <clears throat> but she said, and it was profound, and I remember this, even though I'm still frustrated thinking back at that. She said, how long are you willing to search for something that you're trying to find? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, I was probably more frustrated than anything. Um, but I remember that question. I was like, whoa, I don't know. And as God's children, I think this is a profound question for us to ask ourselves. How long are we, or how long are even you, willing to search for your identity in Christ? If God is really your father, and if we are really children of God, 
that identity, it isn't just clear. It isn't just clear. It requires us to search long and hard, oftentimes in frustration, oftentimes in groups of frustration, but God's promise is that that identity is there. It's our job to seek it out and find it. And so we are going to be walking through Hebrews 2. And Hebrews 2.1 says this. Pay attention. <laughs> it says this. We must, pay, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The book of Hebrews in chapter 2, he starts off with kind of like a halftime speech to a team that is losing and losing horribly. He's like, y'all, pay attention, because this is important. If we don't get this, we won't get anything. Pay attention to what you have heard, because when things get hard, we often just want to shut off our ears and become introverted, when that is the exact opposite thing that God desires for us. Pay attention that we don't drift away. You see, Jesus really does change everything. And our understanding of who Jesus is changes everything. That's easy to say, but that's really hard to believe and to live out on a daily basis. You see, there was a temptation to slide back into putting their trust into their own works rather than what God had did for them. But that's okay, that's a good thing because we never have that temptation, right? We never try and perform to earn God's trust and love. We never try and do more good things, you know, to come to church and be like, all right, I can sing that worship song because I really feel like I did great this week at serving you, Jesus. You know, that is us every single day, every single week, month, year, no matter if we've been following Jesus for a year, or we've been following Jesus for 40 years, we are still that child wrestling with our identity. I love this quote. It says this. It says, God's dwelling in the midst of Israel was the great central fact to which all the commands concerning holiness were but preparatory and subordinate. So the work of the Holy Spirit also culminates in the personal indwelling of Christ. Aim at this and expect it. You see, Israel, their job was to not create a holy space for God. God created a holy space for Israel to walk into community with him. We so often come to church we so often come to our faith, our beliefs in Christ, thinking, I just need to create a space for God to put up with me, and then maybe he'll love me. When in actuality, it is God who creates the holy space in us. It is for us to seek out, what does it mean, what does it look like that God is dwelling in me, and that somehow I'm holy even though I am a complete failure? at least what looks like to be a complete failure. In verses two through four, it says this. 
For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, he's talking about the law, and every violation and disobedience received its just, just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. You see, the law was indeed binding. It was impossible to live out because of our sinfulness and Israel's sinfulness. Every violation of the law required a just punishment. Whether that was a pigeon that needed to be cut, or gooding a bowl for your family, or for your clan. I mean, you could just read the Old Testament, how Israel constantly failed and constantly tried to figure out how do I get back into right relationship with God? But what this is telling us is that Jesus took that punishment for us. But here's the thing. How can we escape punishment that we justly deserve if we ignore Jesus' work on our behalf? The identity that Jesus wants to give us, that we are truly God's children, brothers and sisters in Christ. I think this brings up a great question for us to think about. Why is it that we continuously ignore God's grace? Why is it that we continuously ignore God's grace? It's constantly staring us in the face. It's constantly inviting us into a more deeper relationship but I think we just constantly ignore it. Like little children, <laughs> we kind of just fuss and are angry with ourselves and ah, I, don't, I didn't do that right. But God invites us to accept his grace because if not, there is just punishment. In verse five, it says this, it is not the angels that he subjugated the world to come, about which we are speaking. You see, the, the author of Hebrews is really trying to flesh this out. There were a lot of people during this time that were questioning who was Jesus. Was Jesus just some person that did some really good things? A lot of people thought, well, maybe Jesus was just kind of like this angelic being. And the author is trying to make it crystal clear who Jesus is. That Jesus wasn't just some like angelic being. The author is trying to put Jesus in full frame for us. Look at Jesus and what do you see? Who is Jesus when you really think about him? The question matters to us because who Jesus is, is who we are. You see, we are raised with Christ, right? When Christ died on our behalf, he was raised from death to life. And scripture tells us that somehow, in this crazy way, we are also raised with Christ. We are also somehow glorified with Christ. We are somehow holy like Christ. When I look at myself, I don't see that. And one day, somehow, we will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't understand that, and I don't want that responsibility, but somehow, God desires me to live into that identity, and he desires it for each and every one of us. 
This isn't just something that will happen to those that are good. This happens to all that, that believe that Jesus truly is who he said he is, the God of the universe, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, we have this identity that is mind-blowing. I mean, absolutely crazy. If someone said, hey, Brian, I'm going to give you authority to become president of the United States, I would probably say, I don't want that, <laughs> right? Because I don't have the tools or the capabilities to probably be the president of the United States. That, that would take a lot. That would take a lot of skill. Let alone ruling and reigning over all of creation with Jesus. That's insanity. <laughs> but somehow that is the identity that we are asked to live into on a daily basis. That we somehow will rule and reign with Christ. In verses 6 through 7, it says this, and he is nonchalantly quoting a lot of Old Testament scripture. He says, ah, there's some place where someone has testified. He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you even care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You see, he is supporting Jesus' humanity. The author is really trying to make it crystal clear to us that Jesus wasn't just some angelic being that didn't really experience the gamut of hum human emotions. He wasn't just God in human flesh that kind of pretended to be a human. No, Jesus really was a human. He was truly human and truly God. So I want to ask you this question. Why is it important that we understand Jesus was truly human. I want you to turn to a neighbor. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds, right? Because I've probably talked too long and you need to interact or do something before people fall asleep. So I want you to turn to a neighbor for 30 seconds. I want you to ask and answer this question. Why is it important that we understand Jesus was truly a human? And go. <laughs> Ten more seconds. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wrap up those thoughts. <clears throat> Why is it important that we understand Jesus is truly human? In verse 8 of Hebrews 2, it says this. And put everything under their feet. Finish the quotation. It says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. You see, what it says is that as humans, we were created to rule and reign you know, before the fall. God gave us this task. God gave us this identity that we were supposed to rule and reign, and we kind of failed at it in a miserable way. 
But why, do we, why is it important that we understand that Jesus was truly human? It's important because Jesus ruled and reigned as a human in the perfect way that we never could. He lived out the identity that we're supposed to live into every day. And it wasn't just like Jesus came to earth and was, you know, he had all this information downloaded in his head. He didn't really have to think or he really really didn't have to feel emotion. Like it was all kind of there to begin with. No, scripture tells us he was born as a baby. As we talked about that gamut of stages of parenting, Jesus underwent those and they were new to him as a human. He experienced the emotions that we feel. He experienced, we think, his dad dying. He experienced death. He experienced betrayal. He experienced all of these things. And I think that is important for us to understand because Jesus was still able to live into his identity. That he was truly God and truly human. Jesus understands what it means to live into an identity all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. He lived into his identity that he was truly God's son. And in verse 9 through 11, it says this. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, being a human. And now he is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That is crazy to me. That like Jesus took death on behalf of us, not just because he's God. I mean, that is a reason. He desires a relationship with us. But he did it so that he could look at us and call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus could could look at us and call us his brothers and sisters. Not in like just some conceptual way, but in a very tangible way of he now dwells in us and understands us better than we ever could. And now that same Jesus is living in each and every one of us. The identity piece is not that we're born of the same flesh and blood in the same family line but we are born in a spiritual family and now we live into that and that is the church. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, we we need to learn what it means to grow together as a family and I think our church does that really well. I think we know and understand that. In times of sharing, I've seen people pray over each other after the service or during songs, weeping and praying over each other but there's still more that we need to live into as our identity as a family. We also fail together as a family as we try and grow into what does it mean to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's the thing, what we don't do is decide what makes us holy. 
That is Jesus' job. And the second thing of this is, like it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed of you being a part of his family. When Jesus looks at you in all of your mess, anxiety, frustration, jobs, money, anything, that doesn't matter. Jesus is not ashamed of you. That's a hard truth to live into because I often feel ashamed of myself. I often feel ashamed of my family. I often feel ashamed of my exterior family, my extended family that like, we had to cut off because of who they were. That's hard and messy. But when God looks at us in all of our mess, God is not ashamed of you. There's a story, um, when we were moving out of, out of D&E, we lived there for a few years. We lived um, in Moyer in the basement. That's kind of how we moved to Elkins. We didn't have money for a house or, or anything. Our budget was pretty small being on Young Life staff and starting up. And so we lived in the basement of the storm. And uh, as soon as Braven came, five people in one and a half bedrooms was, was not sufficient um, according to Bree, I could have done it longer, but uh, <laughs> I was smart enough to recognize when my wife was very unhappy, things didn't go well. Um, but I remember moving into our new house, <clears throat> which is great, because um, we ha- now have more people in the house, which makes it even better. But I remember uh, I had a box of some of Barrett's things. And I don't know, Barrett was probably four at this point, Bree. Uh, yeah, and so we were moving some of our stuff up the steps. And I remember I had a box, and Barrett really wanted to help. He wanted to help me move things, because uh, he was four, right? And so he was almost self-sufficient and old enough to make his own decisions. Uh, <laughs> and so there was this big, heavy box of books, and there were Barrett's books, and so Barrett wanted to move his books. And I knew he couldn't move those books up our stairs. <clears throat> so I said, hey, buddy, um, I took out a book that I think he could move, and I wanted to give him that book, and I wanted to take the box. And Barrett was angry, and so he started to cry because he wanted to move the box up the steps. And I said, bud, just take this one book. Daddy's got the box, right? And Barrett did not take that well. (laughs) He started to cry. (laughs) And I said, all right, man, go for it. You try and move the box. And I watched as he, like, pushed the box all the way up to the steps and then couldn't actually pick the box up. And so he started to cry more. Uh, And at the end, it eventually was me carrying the box and carrying Barrett, who was crying, (laughs) you know, up the steps. (laughs) He really wasn't able to do that task, right? I offered to give him a little book, but Barrett did not like to just take the little book. He wanted to be a man as a (laughs) four-year-old, and carry that big box. And I think that is just like how we are. We ask Jesus to let us do something for him, and we're not satisfied to do that only. We have a very natural and a very proper desire to do more, and so we undertake something that we actually can't do. 
And so because we fail, because we don't have the strength and power, and it's probably not even our job to do what we're, we're trying to do, we sit down and we cry as if the box would never get up the stairs until we carried it up. But Jesus comes along and he takes the book and he takes us, little children, and he carries us both. Us and the task. Instead of sitting down and crying and saying, my father, dad, Abba, I have the will to do this, but I cannot. Come and do it, my father. For it's not our work. It's your work. That there's something in us that I've got to prove something to my heavenly father. I feel that all the time. I felt that this morning in preparing this message. The insecurity and the guilt and all of this that comes up. Hebrews 2.11 comes in and it says this. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I love this because Jesus is not ashamed of our lack of strength. It's how we actually designed us. Reliance on our gifts as God's children is a really good thing, and we need to do that. We need to live into the gifts that God has given us. But it's also our job to accept our lack of ability. It's actually a necessity to living into the idea that God is our Father, and we don't have the strength to do everything. We are, I think, pretty good at living into our gifts that God has given us. We see people cheering for us or acknowledging those gifts. But man, do we get angry when someone brings up what we lack. <laughs> but it's actually a necessity. Or else we sit and fret and cry at the foot of the steps. Instead of going to Jesus at the foot of the cross and acknowledging, I don't have the strength to do this nor was I ever designed to. And so verses 12 through 14 says this. He's quoting again. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am in the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. You see, Jesus tasted death for us. He, he destroyed Satan's hold on us. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest that we could never be. And in doing all of that, he made atonement for the sins of his people. I think it is vital it is vital to understand what it means that Jesus is God's son because it shows us what it means for us to be God's children. We have an identity that needs to be sought out and we have to grow into that identity. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just click one day. It isn't something that you can master. 
in a, a seminar or a seminary class. This isn't, I just need to read my Bible more, although that does help. <laughs> we have to grow into our understanding of who God is and how we are made like Christ in his image. There are a few final quotes that I really want to share with you because um, as I was just kind of contemplating and doing some research, from, um, there's this guy, Andrew Morey. He's a really famous um, theologian and missionary in South Africa. And he said this about Hebrews. He says, since God has spoken decisively, he is the one, or sorry, in one who is a son. Since this son is co-equal with the father, sharing in the divine nature in an exclusive sense, and since the son has condescended to become man in the, in, in the incarnation in an inclusive sense, and has suffered death on our behalf as the substitute, since this son and high priest has not only raised from the dead, but has been exalted by the Father, and as the God-man is destined to rule over all things as Lord, since the Son is fully human in both roles now as Lord, who reigns from heaven, and as high priest who has atoned for sin, then we better, then we better pay close attention to all that God has done and is doing for us in this Son, who is our Lord and our high priest. As the author has put it, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Jesus has done so much for us. I mean, so much in this new identity that he has given us. But man, it is so hard to wrap our brains around it. But does that mean we stop? Does that mean we falter? No, we link arms with our brothers and sisters and we walk into that identity. How shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation? I love this because we're not just saved from sin. I think you've heard this before, but we're saved to a new identity. We aren't just saved from our brokenness. We are saved towards being whole in Christ. We aren't just saved from this broken world, but we're saved to a new kingdom. Another quote says this. He will make me holy. This is one of his prayers that he would pray over himself. He will make me holy. My tempers and dispositions will be renewed. My heart and mind cleansed and sanctified. Holiness will be a new nature. And yet, there will be all along the consciousness, the humbling and yet full of joy. It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. As, as a parent, I don't expect my three-year-old to make 18-year-old's decisions. That would be a terrible thing to do. God does not a three-year-old baby Brian <laughs> struggling to understand who I am to Christ, in Christ to make an 18-year-old mature decision. God is patient. He is kind. He is loving. And he is always inviting us into something more, into something greater. There's a book that I'm reading right now. It's called um, Abba's Child. I would highly recommend it. The whole thing deals with 
who we are in Christ. And it really gets to the core. And there's a, a chapter called The Imposter. And the author makes a bold claim that all of us deep down have this imposter. That we desire to show everybody who we truly are not by showing them an imposter that we have built up. We really want to look good on the outside. We really want to perform. And so we create this person that God really doesn't want us to be. It's the person we show up on Sunday to church with. It's the person that we show up to work with. It's the person that I'm really not, but I want other people to believe I am. And he says what we really need to do, what we really need to do is go into a room by ourselves and pray this prayer. It's from the Song of Solomon. And he takes it a little bit out of context, but I think it is beautiful and I think it is appropriate. It's from the Song of Solomon Chapter 6, verse 3, and it says this. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved. You are God's beloved, and God belongs to you. We are God's beloved. And as the church, Jesus belongs to us. And pray it, and pray it, and pray it until you feel like weeping because it is now your identity that has destroyed the imposter. Living into this prayer that I am my beloved and my beloved is really mine. He's mine because of what Jesus has done. I'm my beloved and my beloved is mine. And pray it, and pray it, and pray it until you believe it. Until the imposter becomes so small that you no longer think about it. You no longer walk into church trying to be that imposter. But you live into the identity of Jesus. That we are God's beloved. And God is ours. Pray it until you understand it. Make it a liturgy of your life. That you are Abba's child, his beloved, you are his, and he is yours. I just want to finish by reading the first verse of chapter 3 of Hebrews, and it says this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Let me pray. God, I pray that we would live into the identity that you have given us. It is so easy um, to at least understand how to parent. Many of us who have gone through parenting, it is a very difficult thing, but we can get through it and move on to the next stage and the next stage, that's because time doesn't care if we're ready or not. It keeps moving on. But Jesus, you care, and there is no skipping ahead of understanding our identity. 
It starts with an understanding and a foundation that you belong to us and we belong to you. And we will, no, we will not move forward until that is a concrete understanding that is at the root of who we are. Jesus, I pray that becomes a liturgy of this church's life. Psalm 6, verse 3. That I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That the imposter of who we are, who we show up to, to work, how as we walk into the world and, and show them who we are in an authentic way, God, that that imposter would be dead and gone, and Jesus, that you would be glorified, that you would be shown, that you would be raised in our life and be magnified, that we would decrease and that you would increase. Father, I'm excited to see that happen if we would only live into the idea that you are our beloved and we belong to you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.